Well, there's no shortage of information out there in the digital age, is there? But as farmers and as business people, oh, there really is a shortage of time. But in fact, extension and adoption is often one of the biggest hurdles for research and development, and with good reason. I mean, for example, with one of the harshest droughts in living memory right now across many wool-growing regions, most wool growers are simply in survival mode. But how best get yourself set up to come out of this drought and really drive your business forward? Hello, welcome to The Yarn. It's a podcast for the Australian wool industry. I'm Marius Cumming. Well, today we have a special extended version of The Yarn as I got to corner someone who has a lot to say, but his opinion is very well respected. Dr. Jason Tromp is a researcher, consultant, facilitator, the head of AWI's extension arm in Victoria, Best Will Best Lamb. He doesn't just talk about it, though. He does it also as a farmer. I am a producer, uh, first and foremost, from northeast Victoria. Uh, we have about uh, 300 uh, beef cows and their followers and about 3,000 uh, predominantly uh, meat composite ewes, but we also... Um, have a fair merino infusion in our meat flock, which is maybe a bit different to most. Well, you've sold yourself a little bit short there. I mean, you've done a fair bit of research and uh, you've yeah. uh, done a lot of academic work as well as yeah. uh, what so, you've done. So what else is So, um, Marius, I suppose uh, my real passion is around in- enabling the everyday producer to take known technologies and try and adopt them in, your f- in their farm. You know, we-, we have an industry that's got a plethora of information that's sitting on the shelf. And when I went off to uh, do ag science at La Trobe Uni and, and left the plains out at Strathdowney, the, the old man's parting words were, you know, we don't need another bright spark coming home with a heap more new ideas. What we need is someone to work with producer communities and help them to adopt, you know, that known information that can make a real difference, but for whatever reason, people don't always embrace them. And often there's good reasons for that. Yeah. So you also enjoy not only the learning but the social interaction around that. Yeah. Uh, farmers learning from farmers, essentially. Yeah, it is. And uh, effectively that's what my um, PhD focused on, was, which was supported by the International Wool Secretariat So quite a few years back, I suppose. But uh, it really focused on farmer behavioural change and what are the things that enable farmers to make change rather than a lot of the times I think we tend to stand... You know, the, the research world can tend to stand in judgment and say, well, we got all this great information, but you're not adopting and, and therefore it's the producer that's, that's, that's the problem or the filter. But, you know, I think um, we just got to get better with how we engage with people and how we share information and support them. And uh, I took the learnings of that PhD and, and it was just a perfect backdrop, perfect timing. I, AWI invested $8 million in the lifetime wool research and I went to this meeting and it was a meeting of the researchers and they generated uh, what they called the farmer key messages. And it was an awesome team of people on that research project. Um, great design, you know, great uh, industry involvement. But reality was the farmer key message document went for 20-something pages and had 40-something graphs. And, and it's, it was a real thing that you pull one lever, it impacts on another, you know, a real systems implications. And... And so, yeah, it was great timing, I suppose, to come out of the, the work I'd done looking at, at what was kind of, I suppose, the ultimate package to support farmer adoption. 
and uh, you know this was new information coming off the line and, and so he sat down with that team and uh, with Rist in Western Victoria and um, and kind of built Lifetime U from the ground up you know and, and so I think if you keep the customer in mind um, you know in this case being the, the primarily the wool producer uh, self-replacing flocks you know really trying to you know drive their systems but where does better you know managing the animal and managing the whole package and, and it's been amazing how farmers have learnt the impacts of how you manage the ewe on ewe and progeny performance because it's it makes a huge difference to lifetime performance. Well, the, um, the results speak for themselves, don't they? It's probably become the most uh, successful extension project in the history of the sheep industry in Australia. Yeah, I, th- I think it is a real blueprint for success around around extension and the components that go into it, like if you bust it down. and Just little things like um, the information. There's no chalk and talk up the front. So if there's any listeners out there that you're on your tractor or you're driving up the road, if you, if your deliverer gave you a big upfront spiel for half a day on the whiteboard, well, they didn't follow what they were trying to do. Like, it's, it's the information is supposed to be delivered in context with the producer's reproduction cycle. Yeah, they might talk and give you a vision of the whole package, but the real detail and the responses at each of the different stages is supposed to be delivered, you know, about six weeks ahead to eight weeks ahead of when that's occurring on the farm. So the information's delivered in context, uh, studied a lot around optimum group sizes and reality is what the literature tells you is exactly how that's designed for, for engagement and real involvement, peer support, comparison, challenging, all the things we're trying to do. Around half a dozen, six people is, is around the sweet spot and there's lots of literature that we tell you about that and it's just a whole lot of things that come together, trained facilitators that are there, support you, Really good science, like robust science, is obviously a key backbone to it. But and the tools. If I finish on talking about it, the the thing that I think is the legacy of Lifetime U, the thing that lives on the on the um, dashboard of the Ute, is is the dusty old feed charts. And they're dusty and old because they're being used. And a lot of those were generated out of a combination of grass feed and validated by the trial results. And reality is, grass feed's an awesome tool, but not too many individual farmers own it. So what we did is we we took a combinations of all sorts of things, feed on offer and different animal size and pasture quality and turned that into a set of tools that the farmers could use and and take control because what, what the results were telling us going into the program, we did some surveying and, and it's still got this quite robust approach to it. Back in the early days, 1% of growers entering that course so that's one in a hundred could do an energy budget where they knew what the year required, went out and assessed the feedstuffs, put it all together and say, what, what's her balance in there? What's for her? Am I going to do about it? Am I going to feed extra hundred grams a day of barley or shift paddock or whatever? To do that in a, on an ME basis, in a quantified manner, one in 100 farms that were joining that course could do that. And so is that the farmer's fault? Uh, absolutely not. It's because we were one of the things we gravitate into is you get really familiar with your area. When you're a researcher or a developer, you you know, the old man used to talk about an expert being a drip under pressure. Well, you just got to be careful that you don't get too familiar with your surrounds, as in um, really innovative growers, fellow researchers. And what I mean by that is the tool of Grassfeed existed for years before we did what we did, presenting it this way. 
which is just, there's not always the thing, you build it and they will come. You've got to really think about the farmer's context. He's trying to make decisions on the run. It's got to be really doable. And you make it doable and then they lap it up, you know. And, uh, yeah. So it's how we present and engage to people, I think, really makes a difference. And the tools in Lifetime, you are, are red hot for that. And, and now you support that with the app, which is great. So uh, Nathan Scott often talks about the three things that really... Uh, make uh, or or are required for practice change, uh, particularly with farmers. And profit is not always um, the the principal driver, um, but it's being potentially a master of uh, what you do, but also being something bigger than yourself. Now, do you agree with those uh, principles? Yeah, I listened to him talk yesterday about that. Um, I might come back to your direct question about that, but in my PhD, the number one driver of change in farmers, another way of wording that ties in perhaps with parts of what Nathan was referring to, is the number one precursor for change is discontent. There's got to be some sort of dissatisfaction or the fact that the person can see a, a better opportunity. Else, you know, So rather than wording in the negative, the discontent, it could be that there is a better way. And unless... Unless you've got that underlying sort of unrest, um, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to engineer um, change and the desire to get involved. And um, so that's kind of back at a further level. But uh, yeah, I listened um, um, yesterday about that. And I, I do think for some that, that, that profit is, is in the mix, but this concept of um, also produces some producers and those that are really on the learning curve, and this is where I'm just qualifying a bit, that have had adequate discontent and they've got that thirst to drive and they're really trying to change, I think the mastery concept um, is attractive. For others, it's too threatening. And what do I mean by that? So if we were to go into the marketplace and put targets out there for stocking rate, for example, and we're talking about mastery or past utilisation around that, well... You know, we know there'll be a whole series of farms in the district that are potentially a long way away from that. And so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm trying to link it a bit back to an area that you're really strong in, Marius, in communication. Like if I look back in the Grasslands Productivity Triple P days, we used to ride up when we were promoting farmers to better manage their pastures and look to drive their stocking rates appropriately. And we used to have these champions that we rode up and promoted. And part of what I did in my research PhD was I interviewed farmers across the district, no no bias, knocked on every door. It happened to be when the district that you grew up in. Um, and, um, and and some of the farmers that I interviewed, and I said, well, why haven't you got involved? And they said, well, you know, I haven't got involved because one of the primary reasons is we had some concerns about whether this higher input, higher output system would work on our farm, particularly when the Department of Ag's on the best bit of dirt. But what heightened my reservation to that is the champion farmer that you're writing up, the so-called master you're promoting, is the person that we exactly don't want to be. And I then say, well, clearly why? And, and the issue was that, that some of those were quite extreme for stocking rate and they bared their farm out too much in the autumn and it actually played on the fear or the barrier that they had for getting involved. So just, just got to be careful with what you're promoting around mastery. I think it's got to be targets that are relevant to that individual and you've got to put the support around them to so it's not a threat. Mm. It's 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 aspirational. And look, um, and 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 the bigger and and the other concept about them being bigger than their their individual farm. Again, I would say that farmers that 
feel a little more in control of their, of their own destiny and they've got some wins. Um, if I ref reflect directly on, on a producer I can think of in, in Western Victoria, um, you know, when there was some challenges in the, in, in the industry discussions around uh, lamb survival and, la and landline came to my farm and, and also his farm and his name was James Petty, he grew up in Western Victoria farm there and um, you know, basically he, because he had taken control of his system and really improved that outcome, then the producer feels more empowered to not only the result on their farm but then almost help the industry to address the challenge. Be part of a movement. Be part of a movement. But for someone that's um, not had that support and had that opportunity, it can seem that industry set challenge can seem kind of beyond them. And um, so I suppose in a more applied sense, the work I did as far as um, practice change goes, there's four key pillars to enable someone to make a change on their farm. And I think the, the thing is, is we talk a lot about just driving them with knowledge. You know, you do this and you'll make an extra 50 bucks an hectare or and it's very much about the science. So change in knowledge is, is just one of four pillars. Claude Bennett from the States built a thing called Bennett's Hierarchy. And basically what he talks about is four key pillars for behavioural change. It's changing knowledge, changing attitude, changing skills and changing aspiration. And you've got to tick all four boxes if you want sustained change. So you can't just hammer someone with knowledge unless they've got the attitude, the skill and the aspiration to pull that off. And that's why a program like Lifetime View is built around working on that. So the aspiration stuff's worked on with the peer support. The knowledge and the skill has come through the training. You know, but we, we wanted farmers to learn how to assess pastures and assess sheep for years, and we used to run these pasture training days and, and uh, condition scoring days in isolation. But unless you build the context or the, the situation where the farmer needs to apply that so that you're driving the need to have those skills, it be, it's a so what otherwise. Whereas once you build that backdrop, then you, you set it up so you can work on knowledge, attitude, skills and aspirations in a balanced way. And that's why that program flies, because mm. it does exactly that. So looking um, at uh, the, the sheep industry in Australia at the moment, and I mean, we've had over 3,000 people that have done Lifetime you know, a lot of people looking for the next thing. What could that next thing be? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a great question. In this program, we really put in strong background, robust background in evaluation. So you're looking at a program that has a few thousand graduates. The farmers are benchmarked on the way in, basically for their productivity settings of their farm, their attitude, skills and aspirations, all that's measured. And then subsequent to the course, and so there's about a three-year gap in between, you know, they're reassessed. And, and you're looking at a program that has a 7 or 8% impact on marking rate, from beginning to end, about a 10% increase in whole farm stocking rate, 30-odd percent reduction in, in ewe mortality. So it's just an awesome outcome. Like you're looking at a 15 to 20% increase in the number of lambs weaned per hectare while reducing ewe mortality. So any listeners out there that think this is a fat ewe project, it's not about that at all. It's about coaching a farmer to really work on driving his system but better manage the animal within that system. You care for the ewe, it, care, it cares for you, for you literally in return. And, and um, so as a long-winded answer to your question, Marius, that's saying is the farmers within that program, when we tease apart the data set, that I think there was a song about swallowing the whole jagged pill, if you adopt the full package 
that is scanning for multiples, differential management, basically, and that's managing singles and quins separately during late pregnancy and lambing, they have double the database gains. So instead of 7% gain in number of lambs weaned, they're 14 or 15%. And the other difference that's not talked about enough is, is we're coaching people to make better nutrition decisions and allocate the resources better. Where you get the best payoff for that is when you can prioritise those resources to the animal that gives you best return. If you don't scan or you only scan wet-dry, to reap the same result, you've got to more benignly feed the whole flock. So that means the break-even price that the extra lamb you generate owes you more than if you've done it in a targeted manner where you might have actually cut back feeding to the single to promote more feeding to the twin. So in some cases, the net supplementary feeding, the total, is no different. It's just how you've allocated yeah. And then the payoff is, is huge because the break-even cost on that extra lamb is lower than benignly feeding everything. And I, I think that is a theme that might have ties in with perhaps where you're going to go. I mean, it's a huge challenge out there on farm at the moment with, with the way seasons are. And big parts of the country have got a lack of resources. And what sets the best farmer apart from the rest, in my experience, is those that know what they're giving to what sheep, why and when. And that's, that's you're thinking straight, I'm only talking about feed, but it's this whole theme of resource allocation. It's where they spend their time and why. It's where they reinvest any profits and why. And, and I, I suppose what I'm thinking, graduating at a lifetime you, it's a great foundation building program. It's about starting to think, really, really locking in with discipline, that attention to detail on the same things that were being promoted in that, but taking those themes forward across other aspects of your farm, being in control of where you're allocating your resources and why, really informed decisions around that. We spend so much time focusing on the, the paddocks and the sheep and the most critical sort of component of any farming system is, is the humans that have got this massive responsibility, you know, first and foremost for their family and their, and their lot in life, but, you know, they're, they're working this craft of caring for the land, caring for the animal and, and um, you know, there's a, there's a lot involved in that. And, there's a simple test that I like to refer to the, the listeners I want you to have a think about. And for, for a healthy farmer, I reckon a simple test is the 4 by 4 by 4 test. And that's not how big your Hilux is. It's saying you should have four weeks holiday a year and be proud of taking those holidays. When I talked to a farmer and he said, I took a week off but I shouldn't have taken it, well, I know that he hasn't switched off and the whole time he's there is begrudging that time away from the farm. And I know it's easier said than done, but four weeks holiday... Uh, doesn't have to be all in one block, spread out throughout the year, is really critical for rebooting, you know, you and, and those that are, are working with you, you know. So four weeks holiday is critical. Four days training a year is critical. You know, we, we don't engineer these courses just for fun. The idea of them is to get people off farm, put them in a supported environment where they can learn some new knowledge, skills, and, you know, get some real support in implementing things. And then the final one is trying four new initiatives per annum on your farm. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be old mate that's just spinning his wheels and he tries different things and doesn't draw any conclusions. It's always got to be plan, do, review. Plan, do, review. So it could be a new pasture species. It could be a new design to the way you lay out your yards. It might be that you 
you've never tried the containment feeding thing and you try it on a paddock basis to see whether building that feed wedge works for you or different watering scenario. A lot of these things, you know, and I've referred to Dad two or three times, but he said one of the things, son, that you should do is stay focused on running your farm well but treat it as an overgrown veggie patch. And what he meant by that was is you tr- can try different things. You don't... We, on sheep farms, you're not putting in a rotary dairy every other day that you either... You're in it or you're not, holus bolus. There's lots of stuff we can try at a smaller scale. And trialability is something that we've just got to enable farmers to give things a go. If you don't have the skills to evaluate it well, get someone to help you. And this is, this is one of the awesome things with the industries at the moment, with producer demonstration programs, training courses, the best and, and program that offers continuity here in Victoria, we have Best Wool, Best Lamb, you know, and the, We've got groups of farmers that have been in it 10 year plus, 21 years it's been going, and it provides this backbone of continuity for, for them to evaluate things over time on their farm. Now, not every listener's had that same opportunity, but, yeah, give new things a go. So have a think as you're out there, how you're travelling on the 4x4x4 test, and really try and look after yourselves and your own mindset, you know, first and foremost. We're doing more work coaching farmers to build more resilient systems and be more proactive in, in, in that, but it's hard when you're in the trenches and the role of that. And I suppose if I talk about a project that I worked on, we called it More Lambs More Often. It had some key components, and the first one was to know your enemy. <laughs> and what that is is... Uh, so the project was all about bulletproofing business, sheep businesses against varying systems. So it had a bit of a war analogy, Murray, so, so often it's a real challenge. And the first one, if you're going to go to war, is you want to understand your enemy. And what that's about saying is, you know, what's the implications on on your business and in your environment of these varying seasons? And you look at sort of probabilities of different ones. But I think the other parts of the package that are ones that we're really getting farmers to think about more, and that is having more adjustable sites. So in other words, this is making some strategic decisions in your farm to build your deck of cards. E.g., a farmer can't put the sheep in containment if he hasn't ahead of time built the containment pens. Or a farmer can't use growth promotants on his pastures if his soil fertility and pasture base aren't up to scratch because you can't put nitrogen or gibberellic acid on onion grass and get an economic return out of it. So it's about knowing your enemy, having an adjustable site, so a deck of cards that means that under different circumstances you can play the right card and trigger points around that and the final two areas were some concepts around hitting your targets so come hell or high water what are the things that our analysis tells you regardless of season you should stick with and then and then finally is this dodging a bullet and and i think with the dodging a bullet stuff you you've got to have a systematic plan around potentially reducing stocking rate and, and in thinking about that, I like to talk about the onion and these farmers you're talking about that have been in it for 18 months are well at the core of the onion and, they're, and like me in the kitchen, they're weeping because it's easy to get rid of the outer layer of the onion, which is your older ewes or older group of weathers. We've got to try and preserve the core the best we can and, um, yeah, and obviously try and buy carrying capacity whichever way we can, either through supplement or adjustment and... Yeah, I just want to say as an industry, you know, to the industry, there's a lot of support for you out there. You're not alone. There's other growers in the same boat. There's network programs, you know, through the likes of AWI and plenty of other initiatives 
reach out to your mates and reach out to the industry to try and help you because at the end of the day, you know, the, the golden goose to this industry is 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 the breeding ewe base and we can't erode that capital too much further, Morris. No, and uh, just to finish on, I mean, you have been around a long time. You've, um, you've been not only talking the talk but you walk the walk. You've got uh, a tremendous following of people. Just how optimistic do you feel about the Australian sheep industry? Well, I... I am I am super optimistic, but there's a two or three areas that I'd like to talk about in answering the question, and and I'm optimistic because of of the opportunity that's there and, and how tight I feel our supplies will be for some period of time, and there is development in our markets. You know, there's opportunity that's opened up in a lot of the sheep meat area. You know, real development in in consumption in the wool area of yours, Marius. You know, the demand side of the equation. Uh, you've been telling us is looking good, uh, but supplies of all those products is, is, is really tight. One of the things I love about the sheep industry compared to beef, where I'm spending a bit more time back in, which I grew up, is is the resilience around our pricing. Um, you know, if you look at the beef industry and you follow the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, when it forgets to rain on the eastern seaboard, the price plummets. And I've got a graph that shows exactly that, how tight that relationship is. Um, we've had a horrendous season around here, um, but but the circumstances held up really well for pricing in our in our markets. So that resilience in our markets, and the fact that it's a bit disjointed with what's going on seasonally, is 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 quite good. Even when we have periods of bigger sell-off, you know the the lamb and mutton job is held up really well. So that's part of what excites me. Other parts, what that excites me is the is the chance. I mean, tell me another industry where you can take this animal and and we've got this continuum. People talk about breeds. I just reckon there's this continuum of traits that you can dial up the outcome you want and work on it. And you, you know, there'll be people online out there that you've got a uh, 55, 60 kilo ewe, you know, she can produce what, depending on which animal you're into, a, a, you know, could be 60, 80 dollars for the fleece, you know, and two great lambs. And, and that sort of efficiency is just excites me so much, the ability to, to do that. But what we've got to remember is we're engineering this animal to run in a quite a variable environment. And we've got to have the skill set to support that breeding ewe, you know, to sustain itself. We don't want to go down the road of the dairy industry where they chase milk yield hard and it trades off on fertility. Well, that's in a relatively controlled nutrition environment. We have a wide brown land so we've got to be in control of the bag of genes and, and make sure we're engineering an animal to be fit for our farms and fit for our market. And, and that sometimes means you're not going for maximum production because maximum production is okay if she's in a pristine nutrition environment. It might be less than okay, i.e. exacerbate death rate, if she's in a more challenging environment. So, you know, genetics is a really exciting area. Um, but I suppose the, the, the challenges that I see, certainly um, I reckon in the sheep meat area, there, there are some challenges. I think whilst we've had such tight supplies, we're pushing into extreme pricing areas that the evidence shows that domestic consumption of lamb is, is going backwards. And uh, that's okay while you can trade off on that and export and find new markets. But I think there's an appropriate spot and maybe that's not out at the extreme you know, extreme prices of sort of seven, eight dollars a kilo and beyond. So I think price is a challenge for sheep meat. 
I think because of that, what we've seen is availability of the product is a challenge too. You don't see it on the shelves like we're used to. And I do, I do consider that for the whole of the industry, there's some stuff that we need to keep working on, which you've done work in Marius in the social licence area, that we just keep, keep working on getting better at what we do, being proud of what we do, and, and, and really work on the areas that, that need a bit of attention. So, you know, in that, in that welfare landscape, just, just being right on top of things. But, you know, we are the custodians of, what, 40 million breeding ewes plus their followers. So I get the fact that, that farmers feel, geez, people don't respect that we're the ones looking after the animals, but uh, absolutely I respect that and I want to support you to do that the best way you can, but we've just got to um, be right on the front foot to, to address the things that really make a difference for the well-being of that animal and, and promote what we do well. Well, Jason, um, your uh, time is valuable. Um, we really appreciate you um, having a yarn with us today. Um, all the best for the future, and thank, for, thank you for everything you've done uh, for the sheep industry over a number of decades now. Yeah, no, thank you, and it's, it's been a great ride, and right back from when I was supported to do um, a PhD um, through the International Wool Secretariat. It's been a great in, involvement, and, um, you know... Yeah, I get up each day to try and you know really help help farmers out there to create a better better lot in life for them and and um, yeah we've got to continue to innovate and same on our end so keep trying to reach out to people in different ways and you might see us come at you through different forums going forward. There's a lot you know Marius has got the podcast and got us wound up. There's lots of different ways of reaching you and supporting you. So so. Keep firing up on your farms, keep caring for that breeding ewe and um, let's take this sheep industry forward and, and uh, rebuild it um, into something bigger and better than it's ever been. So thank you. That's Dr Jason Tromp there. I should have added to his uh, many strings to his bow. Of course, he's a great motivator and you may have heard him or seen him at uh, the LAMEX conferences that he has uh, headed up. So look, I hope you've enjoyed what uh, Jason had to say. If you enjoy the yarn, leave a review at iTunes for others to find us. Uh, if you have any ideas and suggestions, we do get the odd one and we do follow up on them. Send them to theyarn at wool.com. Please tell your friends about the podcast and promote it because uh, we enjoy bringing it to you. But anyway, from me, Marius Cumming, thank you for your company and uh, look forward to joining you again next time.